By the way, the answer to that question is yes. He does hear us. As great and awesome as our God is and the maker of all things, he does hear us and he cares. That's great news. Well, today, we begin our journey through the gospel, I mean, the book of Romans. I guess you could call it the gospel of Romans because it certainly presents the gospel. Um, Earlier this past week, I was doing uh, some research into the the long and amazing history of the Roman Empire and the city of Rome itself and it kind of in preparation to introduce this, uh, this series but the, the more I did the historical research and the more I read the, the book of Romans that I realized suddenly that, that Paul in this book to the church in the city of Rome never mentions the power of the Roman Empire. He never mentions their culture. He doesn't mention the city itself or any of the great achievements of the cities or the Colosseum or, or anything uh, you would think uh, someone of that day might be impressed by. He, he just doesn't even refer to it because none of that matters. You see, the power of Rome was going to pass away. It was one day going to fall. It was just temporary. But the gospel of Christ endures forever. And what they needed to hear was not, how do you live in such a great city, but how do you deal with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what impact can that have in your life? So, uh, this, we come to the 16-chapter letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. It's considered by by many scholars to be Paul's magnus opus, his, his greatest work. And indeed, it is the most uh, detailed and systematic presentation of theology to be found in the scriptures. Um, Paul, in this book, presents a, a forceful, eloquent, and logical presentation of the need for and the, and the power of the gospel of Christ. And while we will often refer to what Paul says and how he says it during this series, I'd like to challenge us to remember to keep at least in the back of our mind all the time that really this is what God says. This is not specifically the letter that Paul wrote. It's the letter that God wrote through Paul. It's the Holy Spirit who used the Apostle Paul as the instrument to to write this and this is indeed like all other scripture inspired of God breathed of God it is God's word Um, but God did use a a human instrument uh, particularly the apostle Paul to write this book to the church at Rome by extension it comes to us too as many uh, of the things here pertain just as as lively to us today as it did back then Um, today by way of introduction what I want to do is kind of uh, just give an outline overview of the book of Romans. Just kind of a, a flyover of it and just get the, the flow of things. When I go on a trip, I like to get out an atlas or maybe look it up on MapQuest. You know, where I'm leaving from and arriving to and, and see the whole thing. Get, get the whole picture down in my head first. A general idea of where this is going to end up. 
And then I look at the individual segments. That's kind of what we're going to do today. We're, we're taking the overall view of the scope of the book. Here's where we're starting. Here's where we are ending. Uh, another way to look at it is um, next Sunday we are having our pot providence dinner after our uh, uh, Sunday school time and every time we do one of these things I start out the line by taking just a sample of this and then a little portion of that you know just adding a little bit here and there on down the line and by the time I get to the end of the line I need someone to help me carry the plate to the table it's so heavy laden and there's no room for dessert I have to come back and get another plate for dessert that too is laden but this is kind of what we're doing today is like going through that line that pot providence line we're sampling a little bit of each chapter as we go along and and hopefully you won't be um, fed up you'll just be full up by the time we get to the end of the message today the book of Romans itself divides into three major sections. The first is a, a doctrinal section of chapters 1 through 8, and it deals with the sin problem and how the gospel saves the sinner, chapters 1 through 8. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 is, uh, is the national part dealing with Israel how, and how the gospel relates to, specifically to Israel. And it's, uh, then we get back to chapter 12, uh, through 16 the practical section and of um, how the gospel relates to our individual lives how it applies so the first section chapters 1 through 8 is the doctrinal foundation for the letter it takes up a full half of the book and it deals with the sin problem how the gospel saves the sinner so we're going to look at some samplings along the way uh, chapter 1 verse 28 and 29 talks about unrighteous man <clears throat> and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness and then for the next few verses, he gives a long list of kinds of unrighteousness, examples of that. This is the natural state of man in God's eyes. This is unrighteous man. And as verse 28 says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. The problem is giving up on, the, on who God is and the knowledge of God. In fact, they consider it a light thing. They, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Another translation says, they did not see fit to keep the knowledge of God. Another translation says, they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. All of those several different kinds of translations are based on one composite word that means to test to see if something is worthy and, and, and in this case it is uh, a negated form of that meaning, meaning they, they tested it and said it's unworthy they thought about God and said he is unworthy to keep in our knowledge to keep thinking about him 
So even as they thought him not worthy to keep in their knowledge, what happened is God gave them over to a debased mind. God yielded them up, abandoned to, gave them over to a debased mind. Other translation, I think, says a depraved mind. But this word debased or depraved is, is based on the same word of they did not like to retain God. They didn't think him worthy. God gave them over to a worthless mind. They, so it's a, really a play on words in the Greek here that they didn't think God was worthy, so he gave them a worthless mind. Um, and this worthless mind uh, does those things which are not fitting to an extreme, being filled with all unrighteousness. Being filled with all, and the word all there means every sort of, every kind of that you could imagine, and then Paul lists a whole bunch of them here. This is unrighteous man. Chapter 2, verse 1, uh, self-righteous man. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Because man cannot stand up to the standard of God. What man naturally does is sets up his own standard. And guess what? He passes his own test. But other people around him are not as good as him. And he points fingers to them. They've done this wrong. They've wronged me in this way or whatever. But for his own self, he comes up to his own standard. And so that's self-righteous, man. And, and what God is saying here is that you who judge others, you, you do the same thing. It may not be the exact same sin, but you do sin. And so not only is man unrighteous, he turns to self-righteousness, which either, even further condemns himself. Chapter 3 speaks of condemned man. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned. Go back just a, a little bit in the same chapter to uh, verse 9. If we think of those unrighteous people and those self-righteous people, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. And so... In verse 23, for all have sinned is a summation of what Paul has said before. We, we're all in this terrible condition condemned before God. And not only because we've sinned. Verse 23 goes on, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The problem is more than sin. The problem is God's glory. If there's one thing that's more important than our sin and the solution to that, it's the glory of God. And it's not just a problem that we've sinned, but we have dishonored God and robbed Him of glory by not reflecting it. But now, after three solid chapters of making this case, 
we turn to the solution in chapter 4, believing man. Chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Then Paul makes the case that because Abraham believed in God, and God says, because you have faith in me, Abraham, I'm going to declare you righteous. It was long before the law was given, the Mosaic law. And so it was simply by faith that Abraham came to God, not because he was a good person, not because he kept the law, but because he had faith in God who was able to deliver. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. But the good news extends way, way beyond Abraham, as verse 23 and following say in the same chapter. Now it was not written for his sake alone, for Abraham's sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And there is the, the answer to the sin problem is believing man, believing in the uh, saving work of Jesus Christ. When a, when a person comes to this point of understanding their sin, putting their faith in Jesus Christ, then they are they are declared justified in God's eyes. And that's what chapter 5, verse 1 says. Justified man. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being, having been justified by faith. Justified, uh, a good way to think of that, to remember what that is, is uh, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God looks at us. He declares us justified, just as if I'd never sinned. He declares that of us. He gives, he imputes, that means he gives it to us. And being justified by faith, then we have peace with God. We who were enemies of the cross can have peace with God. And notice that peace always comes after justification. That's why people who, who don't know Christ and don't have faith in him don't have peace in their lives because peace follows justification. Chapter six then talks about this sort of a person who has recognized their sin, come by faith to Christ, been justified. Now he's a, a new man. Chapter 6, verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As, as believers, as those who have been saved, justified, we are new creations in Christ, and we need to count on that. That's what that reckon means, means count it to be so. Consider it true, that you are dead to sin and alive to God. That's the new man. Now, you might not always feel that way. You know how your life kind of goes up and down, and sometimes you don't feel like a new person. 
But Paul says here to count it to be so. Don't go by your feelings, how you happen to feel about it in the moment. Go by the unchanging truth of God's word. Count it to be so. I am dead to sin and alive to God. That's a great way to begin every morning as part of your prayer to remember this, to count it to be so every day. I am dead to sin. I am alive to God. I'm reckoning on that. That's counted to my ledger for me as true, and I trust God for it. Chapter 7, as we, we go through this Christian walk, we sometimes stumble. Not, not anyone is perfect. We, we all falter and stumble, and we fall sometimes, and we suffer temporary defeat. And so Paul very candidly talks about defeated man in chapter 7. Uh, now there's quite a debate here whether this chapter is talking about Paul before he was saved or after he was saved or maybe not talking about Paul at all. Maybe Paul is using the reference to I in a symbolic sense of Israel or something like that. There's all kinds of uh, different ways of looking at this. But as I'll show when we get to the chapter, I think the best way to take it is that when Paul says I and we, the personal pronouns, he's talking about himself. And when he uses the present tense, he means the present tense right now as he's writing it. So Paul is talking about his present spiritual condition as he's writing the letter. It's the clearest, simplest, most straightforward way to take it. Um, and, and, and so that's how I'm, I'm going to assume it for now and hopefully show it later as we get to this chapter. Here's what Paul says in part of his own testimony, uh, chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Um, Paul is talking about in his flesh. Notice how he's differentiating that from in his spirit. In his natural man, in, in the flesh, there's nothing good. In the old man, there's nothing good that dwells in there. And, and even though he, he says the will is present with me to do good, to, how to do it, to, to perform it, I can't know, I can't find out, he says. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. And there's the frustration of the Christian life. And you have experienced that as well. The things you, you would like to do and you know you ought to do, you fail in. And things that you said, I'm not going to do this. Maybe you promised God, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then you do it again. Things I will not to do, that I practice. And I can't get a handle on this, is what Paul is saying. Now, he's not saying this to, to give us an out for sinning. It's just so that we just say, well, that's just uh, human nature. That's just the way I am. I'm just going to be defeated. But that to show that there is a way of escape, that we don't have to accept defeat. And what Paul is saying here is that, that I'm in this horrible condition, but I'm not satisfied with it. 
and I'm looking for an answer to it. And what does he find in verse 24? O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Not satisfied to be in the struggle, but wanting victory over it. Who shall deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the answer, as we'll see, is living in Christ and walking in Him. He is the answer for our sin problem. And we turn from the defeated man in the very next chapter to victorious man. Chapter 8, victorious man. Christ has the answer for our dilemma. First of all, in verse 1, there is therefore now, currently present, this is your present experience, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Skipping down to verse 28. A very familiar passage we need to think through. And we know that all things work together for good. A a lot of people, that's where they stop with that verse. We know all things work together for good, and somehow it's all going to, to come out okay. But notice what the rest of the verse says. All things work together for good to those who love God. Uh, so do you love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose are you yielded to his purpose a lot of times we we look at situations in our life and say this is not working out too well for me I don't like the way this is impacting me the changes I'm having to make the things I'm having to give up or whatever and maybe the reason for my complaining and fighting against it is I am not yielded to God's purpose for my life and so that's one of the things I have to ask myself am I in love with God and am I yielded to his purpose in my life and if that's so he is working all these things together for what he considers my best verse 35 and following just to add a little bit more who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written for your sake we are killed all day long we are counted as sheep for the slaughter yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us we don't just kind of barely get by but we are victorious we are more than conquerors notice in all these things he doesn't just cause us to escape them but in all those things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so we start with unrighteous man and self-righteous man who is condemned man then the tables turn to believing man who is therefore justified and a new man daily walks sometimes feels defeated but ultimately has victory in Christ and now we get to the the next major section which is three chapters long the, the national the, the Jew problem or how the gospel relates to Israel this is like a these three chapters are like a parenthetical statement it's a 
dealing with the sin problem the first eight chapters and dealing with the, how the gospel relate, relates to life in the last four chapters but here in, the, in this portion it's like Paul takes kind of a rabbit trail but it's a very important and significant question uh, how does the gospel relate to national Israel and Paul talks in, in general terms in chapter 9 about Israel's past and chapter 10 about Israel's present and chapter 11 about Israel's future uh, just to kind of introduce this entire section let's look at the beginning of chapter 9 <clears throat> I tell the truth in Christ I am not lying my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. That is, Paul is wondering on behalf of national Israel, his, his brothers according to the, the flesh, what's God's plan for them? How now that the gospel has come and we have this new covenant, how does that relate to, to Israel? And do they have any advantage at all? I mean, considering the fact that God gave the covenants through them, he gave the, the law through them, he gave the prophets through them, he did miracles through them, he delivered them with a mighty hand, he was faithful to them, the Savior, the Messiah came from them. So how does, how does the gospel relate to Israel? Well, he talks about Israel's past in chapter 9, and we're going to look at a summary statement in verse 31 and 32. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Israel's past history is that they, they pursued righteousness by the law, by the letter of the law, instead of the spirit and the heart of it. Instead of having a heart for God, they just tried to keep the letter. And they missed God's real message, God's desire for them to love him above all things. And especially they missed God's provision of Christ. How about Israel's present? Now this is uh, Israel's present from Paul's perspective as he's writing this from Corinth in about 57 or 58 AD. Verse, uh, chapter 10, might as well start at verse one here. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's Paul's statement of their present condition. They, they have a zeal for God. They're very zealous of him. They won't back down concerning God. They have a zeal to God, for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. 
and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Now that continues to be the case for Israel in the main except for a remnant. There are some Jews who do come to understand that Jesus was the Messiah and they, uh, they, they come to faith the same way we do. They come to God through Christ like we do. Uh, Jews who turn to Christ as Messiah. There's a remnant through history of, of Jews who have done that and even today this is going on. But for the most part Israel has clung to the law and rejected the Savior. How about Israel's future? Chapter 11 verse uh, 25 through 27. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. But that has a terminus and, and uh, an end point. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is until God has completed his church and then after we are out of here God will again turn to national Israel and deal with them specifically in the time of the tribulation so until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved as it is written the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins so this is yet to happen it's, notice that it's put in the future tense here um, it's still future tense from our perspective, but perhaps very close. But all Israel will be saved. And you might think, well, all Israel, that, that would take a miracle. Exactly. That's what God's going to do. A miracle among Israel such as they have never seen. We come to the third and final section of this great book of Romans, the practical dealing with the life problem and that is specifically how does the gospel relate to conduct how, what bearing does it have it on life choices and decisions there are five chapters in this section uh, chapter 12 verse 2 the transformed man and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do not, do not be conformed to this world. Don't allow yourself to be um, molded into the world's image. Don't allow the world to press you into its mold. How does that happen? Well, I think chiefly it happens when we, we start accepting the world's standards as uh, applicable to us, as standards for us. Like, uh, if you just consider what are the world's standards for success? How does the world measure success? And does it really matter how much money you have and fame you have and power you have and prestige you have and what kind of car you drive or don't or house you live in or, or don't. Do any of those things really matter in the long run? 
all, all the kinds of things that the world would say, that makes you successful. That makes you cool. They're, they're dust. Don't allow the world to conform you to its way of thinking about what is good, about what is right, about what success is in God's eyes. But rather be transformed. See, Christians ought to be the real transformers. You remember the movie, The Transformers? We ought to be the real transformers. We're going to be transformed. And how does that happen? By the renewing of your mind. Now, this doesn't mean just changing your mind. My guess is that the female species, uh, female part of our species, changed their mind today a number of times before coming to church about what to wear and what jewelry to wear with it and all this. For us guys, it's a fairly easy decision. What's clean? <laughs> it doesn't mean to change your mind, but it means to have a renewed mind, a mind that's made over again. It's like uh, Ephesians 4 talks about the renewing of our, the spirit of our mind. And, and God does this, by, transforms us by renewing our way of thinking. And why does he do that? Be, trans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's important to God? What's his purpose and his will? Notice how different this is from where we began in chapter 1, verse 28. That those who did not think God worthy to keep in their mind, God gave them over to a worthless mind to do all those wicked things and they were filled with unrighteousness. In this case, this is the opposite of that. This is, this is saying that um, you can have a renewed mind instead of a worthless mind. And why? So that you can not do works of unrighteousness, but that you can test and approve the things which God says is good. So we, this is the exact opposite of 128. Chapter 3, verse 8, the exemplary men. This is a kind of person who sets a good example, a right example for others to follow. Walk in this way. Romans 13, 8. Owe to no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now this is, of course, uh, assuming that we love God first of all, but in addition to that, we love, we love others. And this is a, a kind of a, the exemplary man because he is fulfilling all the moral requirements of God, how we relate to each other and treat each other well and right. Chapter 14 is the, the family man, and specifically the family of God man. And uh, Paul is talking here about how we relate as fellow believers when we might have differences of opinion about some things. And those things come up, and we have, we have different um, things which we might approve or disapprove of and uh, what kind of movies can you go see? And Paul is talking about here, uh, can you eat meat or not? Do you have to just eat vegetables? Uh, you observe 
special days or do you observe no, no special days? It's the kind of things they were dealing with back in the early church. And, and they were getting to a point of judging each other over these things. And he says, stop doing that. There is one judge and that's God. But, but we are to see ourselves as a, a family of God in, in this sense. Where it's an eternal family and spirit is thicker than blood. And he says in uh, verse 16 through 19, Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not stuff like eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may build up another so our concern for each other is the family of God man chapter 15 is the abounding man one of my favorite verses here is uh, chapter 15 13 in fact this chapter is one of my 16 favorite chapters in this book and chapter 15 verse 13 is a great verse what encouragement now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit you see God doesn't have in mind that we just kind of get by or we just survive but that we abound in the faith that we be abounding believers and in the hope that is in God and finally chapter 16 the unwavering man chapter 16 verse 19 for your obedience has become known to all therefore I am glad on your behalf but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent concerning what is evil the unwavering man your, your obedience has come known, become known to all and that is quite a statement given that remember these Christians were living in Rome they got the first brunt of persecution when it came in the years to follow uh, this, this church and their children and their grandchildren would suffer uh, things which we would consider unbearable today thrown to the lions and beaten to death and whipped to death and crucified and they kept true to the faith they were obedient to the faith unwavering in the face of all this and Paul is even recognizing that attribute in them now you are unwavering you are obedient and your obedience has become known to, to everyone notice how different from where we begin this book from unrighteous man to unwavering man and that's where God takes us. That's where our life journey is too, from unrighteous people to steadfast in him and unwavering. This is where the book of Romans is going to take us. The book of Romans has profoundly affected lives through the years. Um, back in the early fourth century, there was a... a teacher of rhetoric at Milan named Augustine or Augustine uh, who was struggling with sin in his life and 
especially, especially sexual immorality. And it was just devastating his life, and yet he couldn't give it up. And he was having this internal fight, and he was in the garden of a, a friend of his, and he heard like the voice of a child coming from next door saying over and over again, take up and read, take up and read. And next to him, his friend had, had laid um, a parchment, uh, a scroll, which he opened and read Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And that was a life-changing moment for Augustine. As the love of God flooded his soul and he came to uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, became one of the great leaders in church history, perhaps the greatest leader, having the most influence through the years. God greatly used Augustine. Uh, many years later, uh, about 1,200 years later, Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, was preparing for his lectures through the, uh, the book of Romans. And he kept coming across this phrase, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. And he couldn't understand how, how does one get the righteousness of God? And from the Catholic point of view, it was by by uh, legalism but it just didn't seem right to him and who could who could keep all of this and and as he was reading through the book of Romans he he came to understand that it was justification by faith that Paul was talking about here in the Romans and he gave his life to Christ and you know the the impact that Martin Luther has had on the world and the reformation and uh, not only in his day, but continuing on. Uh, 200 years later, in 1738, John Wesley was invited to come uh, to a meeting at Aldersgate Street to hear the reading of um, Luther's introduction to the Book of Romans. And he went rather reluctantly, but as he was sitting there and hearing Martin Luther's testimony of how the Book of Romans had changed his life, he got a ray of hope that God can change my life too. I can, have, I can know that I have forgiveness of sins by what, what was written here in this book of Romans. I can be justified by faith. And John Wesley became a Christian that night and started the, the great evangelical revival of the, uh, the 18th century that not only encompassed England but spread to the United States. The book of Romans continues to have profound influence on people's lives. When I was in seminary, I took the, uh, a course on the book of Romans. And um, the professor there was just a, a very uh, passionate, powerful teacher. I mean, everyone loved to just come to his class just to hear him uh, teach through this book. This is kind of his specialty. One day, there was a student in class when, when we had got through chapter uh, three and the condemnation of man and the end of chapter three, the answer of Christ, this 
seminary student broke down in tears and begged to be saved in the class with Dr. Sproul. And, and so he was. This book has the power, all the scriptures have the power to change lives. And I believe if you will hang with us through the study of Romans that God will use this book powerfully in our lives too. I'm going to ask uh, our worship team to come forward as we have a final song. One of the things that we need to do in, in order to open ourselves up for God's working through us in this book of Romans is to ask for God himself to be our joy, to be our treasure, to be the focus of our lives as we, we focus our attention on him, as we make him our treasure and as we, we say, God, be thou my vision or Lord of my heart. I believe that God will open our hearts up to the message that he has. Let's stand as we sing together that song in closing. Be thou my vision.